Thank you, Peter. Um, it's great to be here. Thank you all for, for coming. I'm going to talk a little bit about the place of philosophy in the ethics of AI and how philosophy can contribute to this field. Practical ethics was developed uh, in the 1970s. In the 1940s and 50s, it was understood that ethics didn't have much to do except analyze moral language, uh, analyze the meaning of terms like good and right and obligatory and things like that, and maybe explore the truth conditions for which um, a particular utterance was true or false. And then in the 1970s, a lot of social movements happened that put pressure on the discipline, both externally and internally, and that made philosophy engage more directly with political issues. Uh, the Vietnam War was an important um, thing that happened that, that, that philosophers started to think about uh, feminism, questions about abortion and um, sexual orientation and discrimination and so on. And this really changed the discipline. First, a lot of students became very, very much involved in philosophy uh, and signed up to philosophy courses at a time when philosophy was kind of losing steam. And whenever I, I read about this moment in philosophy history, I always had a, a, a bit of jealousy and thought, oh, I just came to philosophy 30 or 40 years late, you know? How, how interesting and how important to change the discipline in a way that can contribute positively to the world. And one uh, moment that, that was particularly important uh, was in, in 1972, the New York Times came out with um, a story about the Tuskegee experiment and the Tuskegee scandal. And this had been um, an experiment that carried out on for 40 years in which people who had syphilis uh, were observed and they weren't treated even though treatment was available. And it was a huge scandal that really pushed uh, the discipline of medical ethics forward. Um, and I think in many ways we are in a, in a similar situation than in the 1970s. We have new technologies that are facing us with new problems that we haven't faced before and that computer scientists are not um, particularly well trained to, to think about these things. And we have new scandals like the Cambridge Analytica scandal, among others, that really make tangible the, the need for, for ethics. So practical ethics, more generally, tries to come up with ways to apply theory in, into practice. And so there's a question of, well, okay, so uh, that's what practical philosophy does, more, more or less, but how can philosophy contribute to ethics in particular? What, what is special about the philosopher? And what, what is special about the philosopher in the context of um, the ethics of AI? And this is just the, the latest version of a question that has been uh, bothering philosophers for a long time and that many people have, have given different answers to. This is just a small sample. And although there are many controversies within, within this debate, the, maybe the most important of which is are there moral authorities and what do we mean by moral authorities? There's much more consensus than disagreement within the debate. And perhaps the, the most important point of consensus is that philosophy can offer conceptual analyses in the hope of leading to better decisions and also better justifying decisions that have already been made, especially to those who lose out in a, in a decision. And with the hope that conceptual analyses can make debates sharper it can make it shorter, and it can make it less inconclusive. So what is conceptual analysis and what kinds of things does it include? It includes things like clarifying concepts, sometimes 
people are fighting about something and they're not even talking about the same thing. And on occasion, making sure that people are talking about the same thing even leads to dissolving problems. This is something that Wittgenstein defended. Of course, that's not always the case. Um, sometimes philosophy can provide nuance. Like any other discipline, ethics has developed a very technical language that can be much more nuanced than just ordinary moral language. So it's not only about right and wrong, it's about what's permissible, what's impermissible, what's obligatory, what might be supererogatory above and beyond duty and so on. It's also about working out the implications of views. Some views might, be, might feel very attractive or be very attractive at a first glance, and then you start um, working out what are the implications, either practical implications or theoretical implications, and suddenly it doesn't seem that attractive anymore. <laughs> a good example is how you know, personal data um, has been treated, or some, some people think that we should treat personal data as property. And that sounds quite intuitive, except you start looking at the implications and how property uh, differs from personal data, and suddenly it, it doesn't seem like a, such a good idea anymore. Pointing out contradictions, public discourse is full of contradictions and fallacies, um, both in the media, but also in Parliament and everywhere in between, and philosophers can, can point out those. Distinguishing questions of fact from questions of value, it's not always obvious and it's not always easy. For instance, in the 1960s, we thought that death was just a biological question, a medical question, whether somebody was dead or not, it's just for the doctor to decide. Suddenly, with um, mechanical ventilators, we realized, well, you know, there, we have these bodies that are warm, their hearts are beating, but their brains seem to be destroyed, we can harvest their organs, are they alive, are they dead? And suddenly the philosopher comes and says, well, you know, what do you mean by death? Is it the death of the body, the death of consciousness, the death of the person, the death of um, the interests and kind of rights that typically attach to people? And finally, providing theory. And in practical ethics, of course, there's a lot of theory that comes both from normative ethics, meta-ethics, and so on. And in the, but in the course of application, Many times we realize the limits and possible mistakes of the theory itself, such that practical cases and also empirical facts inform the theory and change it and polish it. And this is an interesting process because, you know, philosophy has a bad reputation for uh, a lot of disagreement, not a, not a lot of progress and consensus. But in fact, when you study in detail the, the, the history of philosophy, um, theories get very much polished. First, there are consensus on some things that they used to uh, there was disagreement in the past, but even when there is disagreement, the, for example, consequentialist today is a much more sophisticated theory than it was in its origins. And partly, theories get polished through bumping up the rea with reality and taking a look at practical cases. Uh, secondly, it's really important for philosophy to identify moral problems, and again, some of these are not as obvious as you might think. So before bioethics came along, doctors engaged in so all sorts of problematic practices that weren't seen as a problem, weren't seen as problematic. So a few examples is um, not informing patients of their diagnoses, randomizing patients to treatment or placebo without informing them that they were part of a research, um, or even conducting very invasive examinations, like rectal examinations in patients who were um, unconscious. And these, these weren't seen as you know, doctors having bad intentions or anything like that. It was just um, daily life. <laughs> Third, philosophy can inspire moral thoughts um, through arguments and 
thought experiments and analogies. We can raise moral thought about prejudice and invite people to consider certain situations and in so doing stimulate their, their, um, their moral thinking and also challenge moral intuitions. And here I think there, there's a very important role for public philosophy and for public in, in, engagement with the public in general. And then finally, philosophy can provide experience. Good ethicists have extensive experience tackling difficult issues and it would be a waste to not um, involve such, so much knowledge in a time when there's so much at stake. Of course, a person doesn't have to have a PhD in ethics or have published in the best ethical journals to have good ethical insights, but spending most of your hours or most of your days thinking about ethical questions, trying different methodologies, and learning about past pitfalls um, does provide certain kind of experience that can, that can be of use. And in this sense, practical ethics has most experience with medical ethics, of course. And I think there's a lot to learn from this analogy that um, still hasn't been um, worked out, both from the similarities in these two fields and the differences. I think digital ethics is much more political than medical ethics to just cite one difference, and, and, and that makes it, it's going to make it very, very different. And also, we have a lot to learn from successes, but also from failures. And one of the biggest failures, in my view, of medical ethics is how it hasn't been able to regulate big pharma properly. So big pharma today gets away with, for instance, carrying out 100 experiments to prove that a drug works. 99 of them show that the drug doesn't work. One shows that the drug might work, and that one gets published. The 99 don't get published, and sometimes um, researchers can't even talk about it. This is a huge failure. And it sort of signals the challenge that we have with regulating industry. Because most, or a good part of, of the research carried on on AI right now is carried out by industry and not in universities. And so this is a huge challenge uh, for digital ethics to, to tackle. So just to finish, um, I'm involved in, in, in the following research projects. I'm thinking about what digital ethics can learn from medical ethics. I'm finishing a book about the ethics of privacy. I'm working on the ethics of prediction. You know, human beings have been using predictions since the Oracle of Delphi, and strangely enough, we haven't thought much about the ethics of prediction and what makes a prediction ethical. And most importantly, and, and the thing that I'm most excited about, is I'm editing the Oxford Handbook of Digital Ethics. Uh, many philosophers in the room are going to participate in that, uh, which is great, and it's going to cover all sorts of things from uh, sex and friendship in the digital age to democracy in the digital sphere, uh, the use of killer robots, surveillance, privacy, and so much more. So it's, it's, it's very exciting. This is a very exciting time. And I'm no longer jealous of the practical ethicists in the 1970s. I think this is much better. And one day in 10, 15 years, when the Institute has had an enormous impact on the ethics of AI, each of us will be able to say that we were, we were here the first day. Thank you so much. Thank you.